Tonight, Mayor Adams is challenging New York's unique right to shelter law, requiring the city to find shelter for those who need it. As negotiations continue in court and signs of a compromise emerge, we speak to the architect of right to shelter, Robert Hayes, to get his take on how the city is handling the asylum crisis. Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. Just over 40 years ago, 26-year-old attorney Robert Hayes took on a pro bono case that turned into the biggest legal victory in history for homeless New Yorkers. And as has happened in the past, that victory the right to shelter, is once again being challenged, this time by Mayor Eric Adams. His argument that the city does not want to nullify, but rather modify the law in response to the asylum seekers crisis New York is currently experiencing. So does the mayor's position have merit? What are his chances of actually winning in court? And what would be the consequences if the law is indeed overturned? Joining us now to help answer these questions is Robert Hayes, the original architect of the Right to Shelter Court Order. Bob, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Bob, in, in 1979, you were a young lawyer working at Sullivan and Cromwell, which you called, quote, one of the most white shoe law firms on Wall Street. <laughs> now, fairly or not, I, I don't think most people would associate that kind of person in that kind of place with a homeless advocate. But that's what you became. That's what you're known for. How did that happen? Um, I, a lot of tolerance, a lot of indulgences that provided uh, to me by the firm. In other words, they left me alone. Um, I still had to do my day job, which was, you know, working for big corporations and like antitrust and securities law. Um, but, you know, I lived, you know, in Washington Square in law school, uh, lived nearby a couple blocks away um, as a brand new lawyer. And I got to talk to people on the streets. And what I learned um, was that I was as wrong as most other New Yorkers in believing that homelessness was a lifestyle choice. I found out, you know, conversation after conversation, there was nowhere to go. So I did want to get involved in doing something about that. So you took on the city in the Callahan versus Cary lawsuit, uh, the original right to shelter case, and you won. And now what, argue, what arguments did you use uh, to win that case when at the time there was no city in the country that had such a thing and it's still there's still no such a thing in any other city yeah and and you know new york was um coming as i probably in retrospect understand better out of its brush with bankruptcy in the mid-1970s um i did not run to court right away it struck me that uh, if the city officials kind of learned what i learned that there was nowhere for these uh, homeless men at the time to go there would be some voluntary response. 
I mean, it was New York. We had come through um, uh, a period of, of difficulty financially, and I thought there'd be some reason to help. Um, I think it's fair to say nothing interested city officials less in 1979 than helping homeless people. So, you know, I was a lawyer. Um, I was probably too young a lawyer to know better. Uh, so I went to the library and started digging. And, and what did you find? You found you found something in the Constitution written during the Depression that, that I found was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are, there are so many, uh, you know, provisions that we went through, but really the foundation um, is a provision in the New York State Constitution that effectively says the aid, care, and support of the needy is a public obligation. Courts had looked at that over the years and said, that's, you know, lawyer language, precatory, it's aspirational, it's something, you know, we can do if we want, want to do. That's what the mayor wants to do now, by the way. He wants to shelter people if he wants to. He doesn't want to have a right to shelter. Um, we dug deep, we dug more deeply, and it turned out this constitutional provision was introduced at a convention in 1936 at the height or the depth of the Great Depression, and the proponent said, no matter how hard times get in the future, these are pretty hard times, uh, this will be a very unshakable, an unshakable um, message as to the relationship between the state of New York and the people of the state. And we went and just did what lawyers did. They said, shall, they shall provide. Shall means shall, Your Honor. And the judge agreed. So very quickly, very quickly, because I want to get into what the Mayor Adams is, is, is seeking. Um, the right to shelter has evolved over the last 40 years. As you said, originally it, it, it pertained only to homeless men, correct? Now it's gone beyond that. What else, quickly? Yeah, well, um, Raphael, it's been trench warfare from the get-go, to be honest. Um, we finally got a settlement of the case only after the court already ruled that there was a right to shelter. That was for men. When the lawsuit began in 1979, homelessness among men was the big problem. Three years later, the city ran out of shelter beds for homeless women. And guess what? Mayor Koch refused to voluntarily apply the right uh, to shelter to women. So that became a second case, Eldridge against Koch. A couple of years later, families. Third case, McCain against Koch. So um, the fact that we have a mayor in 2023 who's being less than enthusiastic about meeting this obligation uh, has a deep precedent uh, from Koch to Giuliani to Bloomberg to Adams. All right. So let's get to that right now. Uh, mayor Adams has asked the courts to uh, modify right to shelter. Specifically, he's requesting that the state uh, uh, that the state court absolved the administration of the mandate to, to find shelter for homeless adults. Quote, should the city's homeless service department lack the necessary resources to shelter them? Elaborate on why you think that is not reasonable. So that is, number one, not a modification. It's an evisceration or destruction of the right to shelter. Right to shelter is what it is at issue here. Uh, a government, executive branch of government can do, you know, many different things when it chooses to, when it decides that's what we want to spend money on, it's this is what we want to assign staff to, this is what we want to pay attention to. There's thousands of things like that sitting at City Hall every day. A right to shelter, a right to vote. There are certain fundamental things that are very important that are not optional for the executive branch, in this case, the mayor's office, uh, to, to, to meet. And what the mayor is asking for is not really a modification. He's saying we only have to do it kind of when we can, when we feel like it, when it's when it's easy. Rights are for hard times. The right to 
uh, support during the Great Depression was created during a hard time. And yeah, these are extraordinary circumstances uh, that we've had with the migrant surge, but it's not so extraordinary that we should walk away from rights during hard times. Well, you know, we just recently had Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis here on the program. Um, and, and, and she said that the right to shelter uh, the original right to shelter court order, which you should know about, um, couldn't possibly be interpreted to mean that the city is compelled to find shelter for everyone from outside of the country, documented or undocumented, because in effect, that would mean that everybody in the planet has the right to shelter in New York City and that the city is obliged to shelter them. And she says that makes no sense. How do you respond? Okay, well, I don't know the Congresswoman, and I don't know how much she knows about the um, uh, right to shelter as enshrined in court documents. But this kind of problem was envisioned even back in 1981. Um, there are, you know, pages not just saying there's a right to shelter, but what it has to look like. We fought for eight months of negotiations to try to make the shelter that was to be provided at least minimally decent. It's not great, but it's minimally decent in most cases. But there's also an appendix to that court order that says in cases of uh, unexpected emergency, we are not going to eviscerate the right to shelter, but we will shift and have discussions about what kind of conditions have to be met. That's happening. The current generation of lawyers you know, have been very understanding that there will not be a shower for every 15 residents, for instance, at all of these newly opened uh, refuges for um, the asylum seekers. Uh, we really are following that, and it makes what could otherwise be an extremely undoable task eminently feasible. Uh, the mayor has many other options, rather than ruining the right to shelter, to meet this current very short-term uh, uh, um, surge in demand. And, you know, if I was, for example, for example, what are some of those options? Yeah. Well, if I were a Republican member of Congress, the first thing I would be doing is fighting to get work permits for these folks. Um, these asylum seekers are really not much different than, you know, two centuries of immigrant groups coming to the United States. Virtually all of us are descendants of immigrants, 98, 99% probably. Um, these are folks who are willing and able in almost all cases to get jobs. You know, I run health centers around New York City now. I'm desperate to hire people. Some of these asylum seekers now in need of shelter are nurses. You know, they won't be licensed in New York right away, but they can get to work. They can support the uh, needs of the people of New York. That's true of many, many, an overwhelming majority of these folks. They will not be in shelters once they can get to work. And Congress and the Biden administration should listen I'm agreeing with Mayor Adams and Governor Hochul to that plea. Now, do you think that, there, that the city will really always have an option besides modifying or, 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 or canceling uh, uh, the right to shelter? Or do you think there may be a time at some point where, where it'll have to happen? Yeah, you know, I don't think it should happen. There's generations of judges who have, uh, you know, held mayor's feet to the fire. Uh, this may should also be demanding that Governor Hochul impose the state constitutional obligation throughout the state. I mean, I had a court order against Orange County. That's where Newburgh is. 
when the mayor tried to bus some folks to uh, stay in a hotel in Newburgh, they declared a state of emergency. Nobody remembered that in 1980-something, uh, they too were under this right to shelter court order. So the governor should step up on that front as well. Um, you know, but it's not just a legal issue, uh, Raf. It's, I mean, does this congresswoman really want to have tens of thousands of people living on city streets? Right. That's, and that's, that's what it, 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 that that would be. I mean, that would be one of the results, right? I mean, you know, I I, um, people are still going to be coming. Yeah, I mean, you know, you and I have been at this for a long time, right? Um, and you know, I am glad there's a legal right to shelter that is enforceable. Um, but I think more important is over the forty years since this litigation began, there's been a shift in how people understand homelessness. I, like other New Yorkers, thought people living out there by choice. I think now the legal cases have merged with a cultural consciousness that recognizes New York is a better city because we don't have mass encampments. We don't have, we have too many people on the streets still, but it's in the very small numbers compared to other major cities around this country and around the world. We're different, we're better, and we should not turn our backs on that. You have said that there is a legitimate concern as to whether or not the right to shelter court order has actually helped to subvert what people really need, which is housing, permanent housing. And you ask, quote, does it kick the housing can down the road? Does it hide the problem? It's a concern you've had. What's the answer? Yeah, uh, there's no simple answer, honestly. Um, you know, on the one hand, you know, I can recognize the right to shelter as something that has not just made the city better for everyone, but has saved countless lives of people who uh, were able to survive with a not great life as a homeless person who gets shelter. Um, during one administration, that would be Ed Koch's administration, the right to shelter was used as a cudgel to force the development of affordable housing in low-income neighborhoods that were basically abandoned and the city owned a lot of the uh, vacant shells of buildings, the so-called interim housing program. Um, Ed Koch and I agreed long after he had stepped down that that may have been the best contribution we each made to the city. Um, but, you know, it's really hard. It's really hard for um, governments to do two things at once. And the immediate often uh, gets uh, kicking gets us to kick things down down the road. Um, I'd like to think we have a better system than that. We do now have a very large supported housing business with too many vacancies, by the way. The mayor should get the bureaucrats out of the way, fill those rooms and get people out of shelters. So there has been progress. Um, you know, Coalition for the Homeless, which we started, had as its mandate to end homelessness. And we've failed miserably, but we made some contributions. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. New York is facing a massive housing crisis by virtually every measure imaginable. One of the leading proposals to tackle the problem is turning empty Manhattan office space into affordable homes for New Yorkers. Governor Kathy Hochul and Mayor Eric Adams both back the idea, which could invigorate Midtown neighborhoods post-COVID and provide relief to outer borough residents being priced out of the city. So, too, does a diverse coalition of supporters from the business, labor, civic, and religious communities called the Five Borough Housing Movement, which plans to keep up the pressure on lawmakers to see this idea through. John Sanchez is the new group's executive director, and he joins us tonight to discuss the movement and the city's ongoing housing crisis. John, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me, Jack. Let's start off by having you give us a sense of the scope of the housing problem in New York. The scope of the housing crisis in New York is massive. We need to build about 500,000 new units in the next decade to keep up with demand. Um, There's an immense shortage of housing. In the last decade, we created about 800,000 jobs, but only housing for about 200,000 people. There's an immense shortage. If you look at Manhattan, the median rent for an apartment in Manhattan is about $5,000. People are feeling the crunch, high inflation. And for this period, New York hasn't been a leader in building housing. And we've been a, a, a national, um, we've been falling short of, the, of building housing. We haven't been a national leader in building housing, and we need to return to that time that we were. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that when, as you mentioned, you know, wages going up, job explosions, and yet housing is not kept pace in New York? Why do you think? A lot of the housing and the rules that govern housing are, lo- are laws that were from 60 years ago. New York City zoning resolution is from 1961 that allows buildings to be built or not built. We have state rules that limit how much housing can be in an apartment. For example, the FAR cap. So a lot of the outdated rules from the state and city are finally catching up to us. And because we were relying on infrastructure in the 20s and 30s, um, that's no longer sufficient. Give us a quick sense of your group and, and who are some of the participants? Yes, our group is a diverse coalition of nonprofit organizations, labor groups, NAACP, the Grand Central Partnership, groups from around the city that want to see more housing being built and to make sure that there's an affordability component as well. And it's also important that this affordable housing is in Manhattan, south of 96th Street. Neighborhoods why, why, have- why, is that, why is that important? Neighborhoods like mine in the Bronx, um, other parts in the city, they have mostly affordable housing projects that are being developed. But high opportunity neighborhoods south of 96th Street haven't done their fair share of providing affordable housing. And it's important that people of all incomes have the opportunity to live near transit, live near job hubs, live near the cultural amenities that are concentrated in Manhattan. That way we can have neighborhood income diversity. Let's talk a little bit about what I mentioned in the introduction. That is the the idea of let's take empty office space and let's convert it to to housing space. We we know we've heard that proposal floated in the past, but but nothing has really happened. Why do you think now might be the opportune time to actually make that take place? Well, the post-pandemic environment changed everything. We're seeing that 50% of Employees at major employers are going into the office on a hybrid schedule. 18% of major employees are expecting to shrink their real estate footprint. And there's an opportunity. Midtown has changed. And because of the dire housing crisis that we face, having vacant offices be available for housing, it seems as a no-brainer. And interesting, in fact, the state and city have allowed office conversions There was a program in the mid-90s to allow conversions south of uh, Murray Street in the financial district, and it yielded about 13,000 units. Um, We want to see an even bigger program that has some affordability tied to it. Now, I know from looking at these earlier proposals that didn't happen, one of the um, the biggest hurdles, if you will, was the notion of the cost of, of those conversions. Is that is that still a major hurdle now, or or does your group think that there are some abilities to make that 
more reasonable and more realistic? Well, actually, the cost of conversions is about 50 to $150 less per square foot than brand new construction. Um, for building owners vacancy, facing vacancies, um, it's actually um, more financially viable. Of course, it will be building specific. Some buildings have large floor plates and it'll be very expensive to convert. What we're seeking is to allow the state to give building owners the option. Right now, you're limited in whether you can convert or not based on the year your building was built or the location it is. I mentioned the introduction that both Governor Hochul and Mayor Adams seem to be on board with, with these proposals. Now, obviously, the devil's in the details. So we'd have to get to that point. But what about the state legislature and the city council? What's your sense as to whether or not they would also be on board with this proposal? What's encouraging about this issue is that it's uniting people across the ideological spectrum. We have city council members saying that Manhattan needs to do more and allow more housing. We have members of the state legislature also saying the same thing. And it's an issue that everyone can get around. We realize we have vacant spaces in Manhattan. Let's allow housing to be built there. And so far, the reception has been warm on all levels of government. And I think it's one of the few things in housing that's not controversial that has a broad base of support. You mentioned earlier that so many of these rules and regulations are antiquated decades ago. What are some of the most significant first steps that would have to be taken here to, to allow these types of conversions to take place with regard to rules and regulations? Yes, the first thing is changing the multiple dwelling law on the state level. Right now, it limits where offices can be built and what year they have to be to qualify. The second thing is a 1961 law called the FAR cap, and it limits the square footage of a building based on how big the lot is. This is a pre-Civil Rights Act era law in a time when New York was much different. A million less people were in New York. And a lot of buildings that New Yorkers herald for their ability to provide stability were grandfathered in. So, for example, Manhattan Plaza and Hell's Kitchen, that couldn't be built today because of the FAR cap. Tracy Towers in the Bronx couldn't be built today because of the FAR cap. And there's no rhyme or reason for the state to limit New York City's ability to determine where does it make sense to have a dense building? Where does it not make sense? Right now, the hands of the city are tied by these state rules. If, in fact, the, those rules are able to be changed to allow this to move forward, uh, what's your estimation as to how many units we might be talking about here in, in terms of the, the developing, um, reconfiguring, repurposing, if you will, uh, the one space into the residential space? Yeah, when it comes to offices, both the governor and mayor's estimates are about eighteen to 20,000 new apartments over the course of a decade. That provides homes for about 40,000 New Yorkers over the course of a decade. We realize not every building will convert to residential, but just giving the option is important. And 20,000 units in Manhattan, south of 96th Street, with about 4,000 of them being affordable, um, that almost um, is more than what Manhattan has produced in the past decade just through offices. We're not even talking about new construction opportunities. If this were to happen, and, and we know one of the, the, the good news and the bad news about getting things done in, in New York is that it takes time. And, and yes. you know, the good news is people are going to be very careful about it, make sure it's the right thing, it's being done right. Bad news is 
because of that, it's going to take time. Is there any type of a, a, a timeline here, any projection as to if everything falls into place, when we could see some of these conversions starting to take place? Well, and, and step one is to change the state rules. Right. Step two is to work with the city to see what are some regulations that could be lifted to allow this to speed up the process. But realistically, an office conversion can take about 12 to 18 months. If everything is aligned, we can see offices being converted to apartments in 2025. Now, I suspect you, you are seeing some skeptics out there and, and some people looking at this carefully. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if you were hearing some people saying, well, wait a minute, th this this sounds like it's just a front for for giving developers the opportunity to make a lot of money here. But what's your response to those skeptics? I mean, to those skeptics, I would hope that they realize we have more than 70,000 New Yorkers living in homeless shelters today that the crisis is so dire that we need to look at every tool in the toolbox. We realize office conversions won't solve the housing crisis, but the ability to allow 20,000 new apartments in vacant office spaces is critical. And of course, building owners are trying to make sure that their investments are viable. They wanna make sure that they don't go bankrupt, but they also wanna provide housing. And I think the governor's insistence that there be some affordability through a tax incentive is important because a lot of the wealthiest neighborhoods in New York City have not done their fair share of providing affordable housing. It's causing pressure in the outer boroughs. When people can't afford Manhattan, they move to neighborhoods in the Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn. And it's important that every neighborhood does its fair share. We can't have all of the other boroughs doing their fair share and Manhattan is excluded from that process. What about that the those neighborhoods, those high-end neighborhoods who, as you said, have not done their fair share? Um, you can anticipate there's going to be some pushback, I would imagine, from there. So what's the plan as to how you would handle that? Well, in fact, I think the pendulum is swinging. Hmm. Community Board 4 in Manhattan recently released a plan that showed specific locations where they could identify thousands of new units of housing, including affordable housing. We're really seeing a paradigm shift. The Manhattan Borough President released a report about two weeks ago detailing block by block locations in Manhattan that could allow for more housing, including affordable housing. So what we're seeing is that now there's a growing acceptance from elected leaders and even people on the ground that we need to do our fair share. But also, this is a desired goal to have diverse neighborhoods, both by income, race and class. Well, John Sanchez, executive director of the Five Barrow Housing Movement, it's an interesting proposal, an interesting plan, and we'll keep in touch with you to see how it continues to move forward. John, thanks so much for spending some time with us. You be well. Thank you, Jack. You too. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.